So this morning we'll be looking at Titus 3, we're looking at verses 4 and 5. And really at, at looking at, in, in contrast to our past, uh, with that dark setting, looking at the fact that he yet saved us. Now, to help us understand where we're going, I, I want us to, to look at a passage from, from Romans 9. In Romans 9, a chapter that deals with the history of Israel, the Apostle Paul ha- highlights that God's mercy and compassion are special graces that he bestows upon those he chooses. That is a controversial statement for some, and no doubt there are some difficult things within that that uh, uh, we have to work um, diligently uh, to understand. But but these these statements that we're about to read are solidly backed by the apostle, and you could say even even on a higher level by the Holy Spirit Himself. So I'd like to, you to turn to Romans nine. In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul goes at length to uh, develop the the concept that God has poured out his mercy and compassion upon some by his choice. And and you'll you'll see as we get into Titus that this really kind of dovetails well with what Paul said in a more abbreviated fashion in Titus. So we're going to read at verse uh, 1 of Romans chapter 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises Whose are the fa- whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a, shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing had, had, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have compa- I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very reason I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardened whom he desires. 
Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared hand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. This morning we're going to look at a passage that is addressed to vessels of mercy. That is to believers. So if you're here this morning and not certain of your salvation or if you know that you're not a believer in Christ, uh, please hear me pleading with you today to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe him that he died for your sins and believe in him today so that today becomes the day of your salvation. In many ways, God has already been so kind to you. Will you continue to think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance of, and patience? God promises you that if you believe in him, he will forgive your sins and you shall be saved. Trust him today. Now, the message from here on is addressed to believers. This, this passage is aimed to help vessels of God's mercy. That's, that's every believer see that their salvation completely rests in God's choice of them and therefore should cause them to respond compassionately to unbelievers around them. Dear believer, just as the kindness of God has led you to repentance, God wants our kindness to those outside the church to lead them to repentance. Does that describe how you and I respond to unbelievers, the unbelieving world around us? It's very difficult to respond that way, especially in our day and age. But this is what God calls us to. And, and the way that we grow in this gracious and compassionate response to those around us is by contemplating God's kindness toward us. And that is what we're going to do this morning. So if you're not already there, please open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. And I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 7. The focus of our study this morning will be verses 4 and 5. Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit 
whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, this morning, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul highlights or spotlights four radiant gems of God's salvation that, that magnify his mercy. And these are these are spotlighted to help us see God's mercy towards us so that we will respond compassionately to those around us. This is what's driving Paul to even bring this up. The, 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 uh, the instructions that we looked at in verses 1 and 2 are, are, are where, what Paul, the actions that Paul wants to help foster. And in order to help foster these, he's not only providing the commandment in verses 1 and 2, now he's providing the, the theological undergirding of why we do that in verses 3 uh, through 7. So uh, we're going to see these four radiant gems of salvation that magnify the mercy of God. And this morning we'll just, we're just going to look at two of those, and we'll look at the other two next week. The radiant gem one, what is this? We see it in verse in verse four, and really in verses flowing in verses four and five, and that is this. He saved us when he manifested his kindness to us. He saved us when he manifested his kindness to us. This gem helps us answer the question of when. When did God manifest his kindness to us? The answer to that is the day of our salvation. Now, now notice it with me verse 3, which we looked at last week, that, that what we're going to talk about this morning is the radiant gems of, of God's grace, mercy, and compassion. But that's set against the background of a, a very dark past all, that is true of every believer. Notice the totally dark and undeserving recipients to whom God manifests His kindness and love for mankind. Hey, you would think if, if humans wrote the Bible, they would set this up so that, that those who were deserving of God's grace actually got God's grace. Right? So this, this is another testimony of the fact that the Bible is written by God and not written of human origin, um, not downplaying human authors, but ultimately it's God's book. So in, in man's way of thinking, only the deserving should get the prize, right? That's how our society is built. Meritocracy is built on that. Much of the world is built on that. Right? But that's not how God works. And that, that's what we need to see this morning. The, verse 3 paints a, an awful picture of our dark past. It provides a description of what the theologians would call total depravity. This verse provides a, um, a description that that shows us our our dark past that we would rather not uh, rehearse. But Paul is rehearsing it in this context because he wants to help us see the mercy of God. He wants to magnify the mercy of God. In order to do that, he's drawing our attention momentarily in verse 3 to our dark past. Now, it, it's not, as I said last week, it's not that we were as bad, everyone is as bad as they could be, but it's that the depraved thinking and our depraved acting was integrated in the very fabric of our lives. The fact that we weren't as bad as we could be is just a, it's a manifestation of God's common grace to society. Paul wants us to see that there's nothing within us, nothing about our lives that incentivized or motivated God to save us. Nothing that moved him to grant us 
salvation, to express his mercy and compassion upon us. Nothing, nothing within ourselves. There's nothing we could, could, could demand of God in any kind of legal sense. We had no grounds even to request mercy. Not that any of us would have requested mercy, um, because that's just not how our heart was wired. And, and yet, verse 3 is not the end of the picture. Praise God. Verse 3 tells us of our past, but it, but it doesn't describe our present. Our, our present is described in verses 4 to 7. Now, we dare not miss the contrast that Paul is introducing in the beginning of verse 4. The conjunction but, right there at the beginning of verse 4, but is being used to, to contrast our past in verse 3 with our present condition in verses 4 to 7. Verse 4 pivots from our shameful past to our marvelous present. And, and when did this pivot occur? When did this change occur? When did our transformation take place? Well, the time is revealed in, in verse 4. The time is the, the time of our salvation that occurred when God's kindness and his love for mankind appeared. Look at verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Notice that when. When the kindness of God our Savior and his, man, his love for mankind appeared. Our sinful past is is a, like a totally black background against which God presents the, the sparkling diamond of his kindness and his love for us to examine. God's kindness and love are the only reasons that God saved us. But let's talk about what the word kindness means, particularly the kindness of God. Now, the English word kindness is related to the ideas of having sympathy or or a helpful nature, having a forbearing nature even. The Greek word carries those ideas, but it's a little bit richer. The, the Greek word translated kindness can also be translated as moral goodness or integrity. It's used this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul is, is uh, talking about how none meet the standard of God. He says, all have turned aside, together they have become useless, there is none who does good. There is not even one. That word good is actually the same word we're looking at uh, in Titus that is translated kindness there. Now, now, keep in mind, there is a totally different word for goodness in the Greek language that's nearly synonymous with this, with the Greek word for kindness, but it's, they do carry some distinctions. One distinction between goodness and kindness can be made by looking at just one incident of the life of Christ. There are many of these that we could turn to, but just one. Uh, there's When Jesus, in righteous indignation, drove the, the money changers and those who were selling things in the temple, when he drove them out of the temple, he was exercising his goodness. That is his moral integrity. He knew his father's house was a house of prayer. It was not to be a marketplace especially a marketplace that was robbing people because they charged exorbitant prices of everybody that, that came there to, to buy. And you had to buy those things because they were the, the blessed uh, the, the, the um, animals that were sanctioned and approved by the priest as being perfect. And the money changers to give money to the temple, you had to, have the, you had to uh, give the temple tax, the temple money, and that had to be in a certain coinage, so you had to change your money. And there was money made at every one of these transactions. So so that's an example of Jesus' 
goodness uh, pressing through in his life. But we wouldn't say that it's an example that when he when he um, ran the, the money changers out of the temple, that that would be an example of his kindness. And yet, shortly after that, in fact, Matthew draws this out. You can look at it later. Matthew, this is uh, appears in Matthew 21, verses 12 and 14, where, where Jesus, just shortly after driving those uh, money changers out of the temple, Jesus received the, the, lime, the blind and the lame. You can look at how he received sinners, that he was healing them, he was forgiving them. We could say that this is a demonstration of his kindness and goodness, all wrapped into one. So you see, at times these things are, are synonymous, but they, as far as the ideas of goodness and kindness, and yet they are distinct at times. So the characteristic of the kindness of God is very important to us, and it is noteworthy in Scripture. Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 4 uh, tells us, or Paul addresses this. He says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, without the kindness of God, none of us would ever repent. None of us would ever believe. None of us would ever be saved. And that's his point there. In Romans chapter 11, verse 22 uh, Paul adds this, he says, Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. Then in Ephesians 2, a passage you know well, talking about how we've been saved by grace and uh, through faith, and that faith not of ourselves. He says there in, in verse 7, he says that we are saved so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So one of the one of the, the things he's going to accomplish in eternity is he's going to use those he saved as as uh, a way to magnify his grace. That we will be the echo chambers of his kindness and grace, magnifying what he has done in our lives. So the, the kindness of God is is tremendous. And yet the kindness of God isn't the, isn't the only thing that's mentioned. But, I, but I, before we look at the next attribute, we need to see that the, the kindness of God is, a, is an attribute that we would call a communicable attribute. That is, a, it's an attribute that he transfers to his people. And, and we see this in passages like Galatians 5.22. But the fruit, of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Those are, those are the fruits of the Spirit are, are God's characteristics that he's transferring through the Holy Spirit to his people. You're to be like God um, in that sense, to be holy for he is holy. Those are manifestations of his holiness. Colossians 3.12, um, Paul says this, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why? Why, why does God want his people to do that? Because he's like that. He wants his people to be like him. Paul adds this in 2 Corinthians 6, um, verses 1 to 6. And he says, working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, giving no cause for offense in any, anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. Now notice this, this particular context is helpful to us because it's similar to what he's talking about in Titus. So he's saying your behavior needs to be a certain way so that you don't discredit the one who has saved you. You don't discredit 
the ministry. You don't discredit the word of God. And he continues in that passage and he says, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Think about that. In everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Everything we do should command ourselves as servants of God. Now, I know we fall far short of that goal, but, but that's what God has for you. Whether you're a teacher, a mother, a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, whatever you do, you're to do so as servants of God. So that people can look at your life and see that there is a difference in how you do your work and in how you live your life. Right? How you raise your children. How you shepherd and guide them. How you interact with your neighbors. Now, that's not all. But in everything, I want to read this again. But in everything, committing ourselves as servants of God. Listen to what he says. In much endurance. In afflictions. In hardships. In distresses. In beatings. In imprisonments. In tumults. In labors. In sleeplessness. In hunger. In purity. In knowledge. In patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Notice how encompassing that is. Pretty impossible for us to do that in our own strength. Just say it. It, I can't even do that. You can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit working in us, right? Instructing us through the Word of God, empowering us in our lives through His strength. Can we live like that? Can you commend yourself as servants of God when someone afflicts you? We get upset when somebody just cuts us off on like the freeway or the interstate. But Paul says, even in imprisonments, even in beatings, even in labors, whatever it is, but Here, focus on the word in kindness. God wants us to respond in kindness to those unbelievers around us because he has been so kind to us. And yet the kindness of God is not the only attribute of God that Paul mentions in Titus 3 verse 4. But he says what? When the kindness of God and his love for mankind This love for mankind is the next attribute of God that we want to talk about this morning. That the kindness and the love of God for mankind are closely related ideas, theologically and grammatically. The New American Standard Bible, which I preach from, has has separated these two attributes a little bit to try to get a a smoother reading of the, the text. It says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. So he's kind of separated those, it just grammatically separated them a little bit. Yet a more literal translation would be something like this. But when the kindness and love for mankind appeared of God our Savior, he saved us. God's kindness and, and his love worked together to produce God's grand desire in our lives. And, and these work together like various strands of rope that are braided together. You know, a braided rope is much stronger than a rope made of just one strand. So in in this way, God's love and his kindness work together in marvelous ways. The phrase love for mankind is a translation of a compound Greek word. We've seen these before in Titus. 
Uh, Paul likes to use them and he's used them uh, before and he's using one here again. This word is philanthropo, right? Made up of the word of philos for love and anthropos, which is the Greek word for man. Right? It's, it's talking about a love for man, a love for mankind. Our word philanthropy is derived from this Greek term. So the, the idea underlying the term is really a benevolence towards, uh, towards others. The American Standard Bible translates the term as love for mankind. The Legacy Standard Bible translates this term as affection. Um, the, the idea there is God's love for mankind, right? So it's not a one-word translation, but but that that's the idea. Um, this Greek term actually only appears here in Titus three four and in Acts eight twenty eight. In Acts eight twenty eight, it refers to the kindness shown by uh, unbelievers to uh, Paul and those who had been um, been shipwrecked. After Paul had been shipwrecked, and he and he safely made it to shore with all the others. Luke tells us in Acts eight twenty eight. Verse 2, he says, The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. Right? What I want to see here is the word kindness is manifested by something practical. Luke says they showed us extraordinary kindness. Well, what did they do? What did they do, Luke? Well, he tells us the rain had set in and it was cold. So what did they do? They kindled a fire. Okay? They met a need. Right, um, so that's that's one of the key takeaways from this is that is that this affection or this love for mankind is is not an emotion, right? We in our society, love is you know in, in pop culture, it's purely an emotion, but love is not an emotion. This kind of love is not an emotion. There's there is an emotional aspect to love. I'm not denying that, but but understand this love for mankind is not an emotion. God was not moved in his emotions to do anything for us. This kind of love is very practical, right? Much like agape love, which we've talked about in the past. It's a very practical love. It's a love that provides something that is very much needed. The love for mankind is shown or manifested in actions that meet the needs of others. Right? You, you can't, you can't, with this kind of love, you can't sit back and say you love someone if they're in need and you have the ability to meet that need, right? you'd be lying to yourself. But but God saw a need and he met it. This is exactly what God did for us. God manifested his kindness and love for mankind by his actions. We wouldn't know about the love of God truly without actions of his work, sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. He made his love appear he made his love manifest through his actions and how were god's kindness and his love manifested to us look with me at verse four when the kindness of god our savior and his love for mankind appeared he saved us now now the word appeared is is the greek word from which we get our word epiphany which talks about having now we use it in the sense of like having an idea you know something came to mind um but it, it it just talks about bringing something to light or showing something. When did God make his kindness and love appear? Well, it's, it's in the text. He saved us. Begin of verse 5, at least in the English text. Text. He saved us. Now, now many pastors and, and commentators 
connect Paul's reference to the appearance of God's kindness and love in Titus 3, 4 with the incarnation, with, with, his, with his death, with his resurrection, um, with the Lord's death and resurrection. John Kitchen uh, is one of those. He, he connects this uh, manifestation of God's kindness and love with the e- e- epochal event of Christ incarnation. And, and he says that this encompasses the whole of his redemptive work as an accomplished fact. So if you read a commentary or listen to uh, even another faithful uh, pastor sermon, they might very well take that approach. And, and I see why they would do that. I mean, Paul makes this very point in Titus 2. If you look, it may be in, on the same page of your Bible, but look at Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, talk about that that love, that kindness of God that was manifested through our Lord's um, incarnation, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. It, he gave himself to redeem us. He died a death in our place. And Jesus did this willingly. He willingly did this. Um, I, I understand why pastors and theologians would make uh, this connection. It's a theologically correct a statement as far as uh, saying that, that the kindness of God is revealed to us in the cross of Christ and his death and resurrection. For, for Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. He, he died in our place willingly for the joy set before him. As uh, Pastor Don Green highlights, when, when Jesus Christ went to the cross to carry the weight of our sin on his shoulders, that was an act, a manifestation of unspeakable goodness and kindness. As I said, Jesus willingly laid down his life for us, for the joy set before him, the joy of doing the Father's will, but also the joy of saving us and providing um, salvation. It was his joy uh, to manifest the the Father's great kindness and love in, in being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, I'd just like to quote here uh, Pastor Don Green. And just, just hear his pastoral heart as, as he just pleased with us to forever settle it, settle it in our mind that our God and Savior is kind. He says this, Beloved, whatever else we say about the Lord Jesus Christ, let it be forever settled in our minds that he is kind. He is good. And part of the way that we need to understand this is by way of contrast with our own lives. You and I are both alike in the sense that when people cross us, we react against it. We're like that. It's part of our fallen nature. We don't like it when people don't do what we want them to do. We don't like it when they are unkind to us, seemingly without reason. We react against that. We worry about it. We get angry about it. It makes us bitter, sometimes for years. Well, understand that our offenses against Christ did not change His good his kind and good disposition toward us. Let me read that again. 
understand that our offenses against Christ did not change his kind and good disposition toward us. What a manifestation of grace. What a manifestation of goodness. Christ on the cross working out, knowing full well what he's doing. He's working out the eternal plan of God. He's working out salvation for his people through all times. Unquote. We, we can rightfully speak of the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as, as uh, the past concrete and practical appearance of God's kindness and love. He manifested his love. He manifested his kindness to us in the cross. And yet, without taking anything away from that, indeed, I would add, adding to that, without taking anything away from the kindness of God manifested at Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection, I want to highlight that, that I think the, the view that connects Titus 3, 4, and 5 with Jesus' death and resurrection overlooks some of the things in the text that point us in a different direction. Um, the context uh, leads me to believe that Paul is speaking on a personal level instead of a corporate level. Uh, I believe that Paul is speaking about God's kindness and love for mankind, which appeared at the moment he saved you, not at the appearance of God's kindness in the incarnation. Now, I'll show you these things. Follow along with me and be a Berean here. First, I want you to notice that verses 4 to 7, even in the English text, at least in the New American Standard Bible, form one sentence. Right? So multiple verses, but it's one sentence. It's a long sentence, but it's one sentence, making one major point. Uh, second, notice that the connection uh, with the phrase at the beginning of verse 5, he saved us. So verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. It doesn't say he died for us. It says he saved us. He saved us. That's very important. When the kindness of, it, of when God's kindness and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Paul is speaking to Christians and telling them that the kindness of God isn't just manifested at the cross. It certainly is. We, we, would, we would totally agree with that. But Paul is, is doing something on a more personal level here. He is talking to each individual Christian and he is, he is speaking to them and telling them that the kindness of God and his love for them is manifested at the moment of their salvation. Paul's emphasis on the fact that God saved us is not because of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy also points to a personal experience of salvation. I mean, no one would look at the cross of Jesus Christ and, and then say, well, yeah, my, my works earned that. Right? So it only makes sense in the context of your own personal salvation. Third, I want you to notice that Paul speaks about the means of how God saved us. We're going to spend more time in this in, in next week, but look for a moment at how, well, how he continues. Remember, this is one verse. He, he says in verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Now watch. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul is describing something very personal. He's describing your own personal salvation, something that happens to everyone who is saved. 
This is describing something not done at the cross, but at the moment God saved you. When Just, just ask yourselves these, these questions. When were you saved by the washing of regeneration? At the cross or at the moment God saved you? When were you saved by the renewing of the Holy Spirit? A renewing by the Holy Spirit at the cross or at the moment of your salvation? When was the Holy Spirit poured upon you richly through Jesus Christ? At the cross or at the moment of your salvation? The answer is the same to all of these. These things happen at your salvation. The cross paves the way for these to happen. There's no way that any of this would happen without the cross, without that manifestation of God's kindness at the cross. But what Paul is talking about here is your salvation. At your salvation, you were regenerated and renewed by the power of God. And he poured his spirit upon you. As I mentioned, we'll say more about this next week. But but now I just want to be clear that, that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, um, we need to say clearly that God pours out his spirit upon every believer. If if um, If you do not have his spirit, you do not have Christ. If you are a Christian, put a pause there. If you are a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit living within you. Uh, in Romans 8, 9, uh, Paul says this, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So this pouring out of the Holy Spirit is not a second experience. It is that salvation experience. Well, we will, again, we'll talk more about those aspects uh, next week. What do we want to say here? Realize that the appearance of God's kindness and love that Paul is directing our attention to is the kindness and love that was manifested to us at the moment of your salvation, the moment of my salvation. What, what, what difference does all this make? It's very practical. When you think about the kindness and love of God, God surely wants you to think about the cross, about his kindness displayed on the cross. But that's not all he wants you to think about. He wants you to think about the specific kindness and love of God that appeared to you. To you in your salvation. We love God for his great love and kindness that he demonstrated to all of his children by sending his son to die on the cross in our place. We will always love God for this immeasurable gift, this bountiful gift. At the same time, and I would argue this adds to the love we have for God, we love God for his great love and kindness that he demonstrated to each one of us at the moment of our salvation. This is where it becomes very personal. This isn't just a, a theological truth that you read about in the Bible. This is what happened to you if you're a Christian. This is your history. Just like we looked at your dark history in verse 3. This is talking about your glorious history. God saved you. He did this. His kindness was poured upon you at your salvation. Such a glorious truth. You know, this salvation, the love it generates, is intensely personal. When, when Christ died on the cross, he died for all who would believe in him. Everyone. John three sixteen and 17, you know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We can also say that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died knowing every soul that he was dying for. 
Turn to the Gospel of John just for a moment. I want you to see this. This is, again, intensely personal. John chapter 10, chapter on the Good Shepherd. John chapter 10. Begin reading at verse 11. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they'll become one flock with the shepherd. Beloved, understand the Lord knows his sheep. Jesus knows his sheep. He's the good shepherd. And because he's God, he looked through eternity to everyone he would save. I believe scripture teaches a particular redemption. That is that Jesus Christ in dying on the cross, knew everyone he was dying for. He paid the sins, not just in a generic sense. He paid your sins. He paid the price for your sins. He knew your sins. And he willingly, joyfully paid the price for your sins. And we would add to that, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he knew every soul that would one day be saved by application of his work, done once for all on the cross. Thus, if you are a believer, the Lord died for you over 2,000 years ago, paying the price for all your sins. Yet you were not saved 2,000 years ago. You didn't even exist. You weren't even born. You were not, you, you were not even a figment on your parents. Your parents weren't even, your grandparents weren't even. You could just keep going back generations. You get the point. Many of you can remember the exact month, day, hour that God saved you. Others can remember the year or general time frame. You can remember that time when he opened your eyes. The glorious day when God gave you new life. When he regenerated you and poured his spirit upon you. For others, maybe you just remember the season. That's my case. I know the general time period can't pinpoint the day. Yet for others, perhaps because you've been raised in a Christian home and you were saved at a quite young age, you can't remember the time. Pinpointing the time is not that important. Here's what's important, that you remember if you're a Christian, you were saved and that kindness of God was manifested to you in a very personal sense. So that's the radiant gem that, that Paul attracts our attention to. He wants us to see that God saved us, that God manifested his kindness to us by saving us. And, and I just want to begin with the, the second radiant gem. We're just going to touch a little bit on this. And we'll speak more to this next week. The radiant gem number two is that he saved us according to his mercy alone. His mercy alone. And, and this gem helps us answer the question of why. why. Why did God save us? Why did God save us? Why did God save you? Why did God save me? Not someone else. And we'll just get started again on this next uh, this week and continue with this next week we need to get it in our heads that god did not save us based on anything we have done look at verse five uh, go back to titus titus three verse five 
He says there in verse 5, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Now, verse 3 already established our kind of dark past. There was nothing in our dark past that motivated God to save us. Now, Paul builds on that by imagining that a person that a person might say, well, wait a minute, Paul. Verse 3, that doesn't really describe me. That doesn't really describe my life. I wasn't that bad. I did some good things. I helped people. I even saved a child's life when he was drowning in a swimming pool. I mowed my neighbor's grass when, when she was too sick to do it for herself. And the list goes on. I, 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 I. This claims uh, that our human conscience wants to make before God. These can go on endlessly. But to all that, Paul clearly says that even our deeds done in righteousness have no impact upon our salvation. They contributed nothing towards our salvation. There's, there's actually quite a bit of emphasis on this in the text. That's, that's the point Paul wants you to see. There's nothing within you that caused God to save you. It's by His grace, His mercy, His kindness alone. That's it. Um, in, in, the, in the Greek text, I should back up, in the English text, if you look at verse 5, it says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, because that reads smoother. But in Greek, it's, it's more abrupt. Doesn't read, doesn't make for a good English translation. But but I'll, I'll read it this way to help you understand what the emphasis Paul is bringing on this. He he says here, um, he he saved us. Uh, the Greek text doesn't begin with the, the the verb he saved us. That 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 verb he saved us is the main verb of the whole sentence. So if you're like looking at the English text and trying to diagram sentences, that's the main verb. Don't miss that. He saved us. Period. Right? You could just make that a short sentence. He saved us. That's what. That's what all of this is about. He saved us. But in the Greek text, it begins with the negative de- denial. The, the negative denial, not on the basis of works, is moved forward in in the Greek text. Paul is is saying something like this, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, He saved us, but according to His mercy, by His mercy, He saved us. And He saved us actually comes towards the end of that rather than the beginning. And I want you to think about it this way. Not only is Paul saying nothing you did in your past contributed, right? but there's the idea in evangelicalism today that God, His foreknowledge, uh, means he knows the future, and we would agree with that. But some people want to say that God, his foreknowledge, looked into the future and saw what a wonderful Christian you were going to be. He looked into your future and he saw how many people you were going to win to Christ. He looked into your future and saw the wonderful things you're going to do for his name, and he saved you on the basis of that. And I think that's why he's saying your deeds done in righteousness. So even your deeds done as a Christian after your salvation. God knew you were going to do those things. But he didn't save you because of that. Sometimes we can look at popular stars sometimes and think, oh, if God would just save him, he could be such a witness for Christ. Well, that's not always true. God's not going to save somebody. He's not going to be motivated to save somebody because they'll be a, a great witness for him. The only thing that saves any of us is God's kindness. 
Now, now Paul could have said, he could have brought up the fact, which he does in other places, that, that all of our righteous deeds are righteous deeds. Uh, in, in God's sight are like filthy rags, worthless and needing to be burned. But I think here, for the sake of argument, he's just saying he allows the possibility that someone could possibly do deeds in righteousness. Just know that nothing, none of our deeds done before Christ or after, after Christ, none of these motivated God to save us. There's nothing, nothing that, that we have, nothing that we did, nothing that we will do that moved the Lord to save us. What motivated God to save you? Right? You're wonderful people. I love you very dearly. To me, you are um, the body of Christ, and I love you. Right? You're special. I would do whatever I needed to do to help you. But understand, when God looked at you, he didn't see anything special that motivated him to save you. The same with me. Nothing special. Nothing that motivated God. How did he save us? Paul very clearly points it out. But according to his mercy. His mercy. And, and that, beloved, is the crux of the gospel. The human mind rebels against that. To rely totally upon God's mercy. You know, one of the largest uh, churches, if you want to use that term, in the world, believes in a system where you can somehow contribute to your salvation. That there's something beyond God's mercy that, that causes us to be saved. And it's not. Now, I'm not downplaying here. We're not going to downplay faith. It, it, the call to repentance and the call to faith, the call to believe. Paul does that elsewhere. Here he's emphasizing the fact that God's motives for saving you are completely found in his kindness, in his mercy, in his grace. Nothing in you, nothing in me. And when we understand that, it will help us as we look to the outside world, we look to the world around us that it's harsh, it's cruel. Sometimes they treat us poorly. They will talk badly about us because they talk badly about Jesus Christ. They will, not, they will not like how we live. They will not like our message. But we are nonetheless called to live in such a way where we manifest God's kindness by how we respond kindly, compassionately, mercifully to them. Do they deserve it? No. But that's the point Paul's making. We didn't deserve it either. They're never going to deserve it. And, and we shouldn't be motivated to treat them with mercy just because they're kind to us. Even the world does that, right? The world does that all the time. Treats nicely those who treat them nicely. That's the world's golden rule. But, but God operates by a different... Um, policy when it comes to, to, to saving. He, he saves us by his mercy. It's of him, of him alone. And it's to that that we can just rejoice. We can rejoice that, that God's uh, mercy and kindness was manifested to us at our salvation. We can rejoice in the fact that it, it's his mercy that saves us. And, and some people might be um, a little uncomfortable with that, but, but understand that that's perfect place to be. Because when you realize that there's nothing that you did to save yourself, there's actually nothing you can do to unsave yourself because you're protected by the power of God unto the salvation to be revealed unto the last day. Right? 
and, and therein lies the, just the depth, the theological depth that should cause your hearts just to overflow with praise to God for what he has done. How dare, like, just think about how we started in Romans 9. How dare the person who, 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 would, who would talk, who, who would see this about God's choice of pouring out his mercy upon people and say, oh, you're unrighteous. God, you're unrighteous. Paul says, may it never be. God didn't have to save anybody. God would have been holy and righteous to let us all perish. But he chose to vessels of mercy upon which to pour his mercy for his glory and his glory alone. And we want to praise and glorify him. And we want to be faithful ambassadors to him. So please, beloved, beloved, reflect and meditate on this text. Allow God's mercy and kindness to move you to live differently by the power of his spirit and the instruction of his word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful. Oh God, how could we be anything but that? Reading a text like this. You chose to save us. You chose to redeem us. You chose to manifest your kindness and your love for mankind to us at the cross, but on a personal level, at our own salvation. It is you who have saved us and not we ourselves. Oh, Lord, help us to continually meditate on these things. May these truths reverberate in our, in our minds and in our souls the rest of our lives, helping us to live in a way that glorifies and honors you, not us. Oh, God, do your work through us as a church through us as individual believers, as we interact with those in our family, in our neighborhood, co-workers, those in our community. Help us, Lord God, to be faithful ambassadors for Christ who respond compassionately, who respond with kindness and love to those around us because of your great demonstration of kindness and love toward us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.